Hello Sword People, welcome to the Sword Guy podcast. This is your host, Dr Guy Windsor, consulting swordsman, teacher and writer. Join me for interviews with historical fencing instructors and experts from a wide range of related disciplines as we discuss swords, history, training and bringing the joy of historical martial arts into our modern lives. I'm here today with Dr Amanda Taylor, author of several academic papers such as The Body of Law, Bodies, Combat and Rhetoric in Sir Thomas Mallory's Quest for Justice, and the forthcoming Domesticating War, Women, Medicine and Military Activity in Pre-Modern Europe. She has presented at conferences on topics such as martial women and political power in Shakespeare's history plays, and battlefield wounds and treatment in English and Italian 16th century epic romances and surgical practice. She has worked with the Oakshot Institute and personally put original antique weapons into people's hands. So, Amanda, welcome to the show. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. So just to orient everybody, whereabouts are you? I am in, uh, well, technically Roseville, but the Twin Cities, Minneapolis, St. Paul area um, in Minnesota. So you actually get to hang out at the Oakshore Institute? I do, yes. I When I moved here for grad school, I had no idea of the existence of the Oakshot Institute, so it was really just a happy coincidence that it is here, and I got to um, meet the, the guys at that team and get involved and um, then actually get to handle the collection and, like you said, put it in other people's hands, <laughs> which is my favorite part. <laughs> it, it, isn't it fantastic, just the way when they feel a proper antique sword in their hand? certain things become clear that just weren't clear before. Yeah, especially the weight. I mean, that's always, and, you know, armor was really my research area previously mm-hmm. um, to edged weapons. And it's kind of the same thing there that the the weight and the just the refinement of the pieces themselves, they're really old. So people always expect them to be heavy and clunky. And that's just not the case. Right. Well, you had like seriously expert artisans creating them for people who really knew what they were doing with swords. So yeah, exactly. one, one would expect that they would be absolutely beautiful and great to handle. And very often they are. But there's this sort of modern trope of the idea that, okay, the medieval people, they were all kind of a bit stupid and superstitious. And, you know, mm-hmm. it, well, <laughs> Egerton Castle has a lot to answer for with his rough, untutored fighting of the Middle Ages. It's like, oh, dear God. <laughs> and Twain's joke yes. about needing a crane to basically like get a knight on a horse because the armor was so heavy. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, and these, you know, Mark Twain was writing comic fiction. So right. That's, he, that's kind of excusable. But the... Yes, the rough, untutored fighting thing. If I ever see Egerton Castle, I shall give him a good slap. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so how did you get started in your field? Um, I mean, being a kid who really loved to read and uh, stumbling across Tamara Pierce's Song of the Lioness Quartet, which is the series of like four books about the a girl uh, starts, she's about 10 or 11, and she has a twin brother and they trade places because he wants to go to the city of the gods to learn to be a sorcerer and she wants to be a knight and so they um, are basically like she cuts her hair to look like him and goes in his place and this works out (laughs) and uh, (laughs) she's uh like becomes you know she's a page and then she becomes a squire and then she becomes a knight and it's you know there's magic and everything too but i just from especially that series was in love with the idea of um 
really, you know, what turned into my research focus, like gender and, and martial uh, masculinity and the ways that um, those kinds of uh, topics not only intersect, you know, obviously in a fantasy space that was really mm-hmm. attractive to 10-year-old me, but then as I delved deeper into my research, finding these in the literature and particularly um, the epic romances that I worked with deeply in my dissertation. So the most... Um, you know, famous of the the English is Edmund Spencer's The Fairy Queen. So that when I was an undergrad, my like undergrad thesis was about the fairy queen. And I worked with it more in my master's um, thesis. And then, of course, in my dissertation. But previous to starting my PhD, I had really only worked in the English context. And so my um, advisor, John Watkins, was like, you can't possibly say anything interesting about the fairy queen without knowing its Italian context, so go learn Italian. So <laughs> I did <laughs> okay. and discovered the Italian epic romances, which are um, older. And then, you know, of course, the mm-hmm. medieval tradition with Arthurian romances. And there's lady knights all over the place. So I um, was really excited to find <laughs> these sisters in arms <laughs> that I'd been sort of like, you know, dreaming about since I was a 10 year old. <laughs> That's fantastic. So, um, who is your favorite lady knight? Marfisa from uh, Orlando Furioso by Ludovico Ariosto. Okay. Um, you're going to need to spell those out in an email so I can get them right in the transcription. <laughs> we'll do it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and there, there, will be, there will be links in the show notes to these various books and things. Um, yep, they're I'm, great I'm taking notes versions. of. Yeah, and I'm I'm taking notes of of these book recommendations that we're going to have to like get in the show notes so we can we can make sure people get the right book. Um, okay, so what what's so what's so fascinating about this particular night? So she is um, from sort of the Amazonian tradition. So she's mm-hmm. like raised wild, um, suckled by like a tiger. That there's lots of those kind of the tropes that come from, you know, Amazons that, you know, reach back to the classical period. Um, but she has a twin brother. So again, that's another sort of (laughs) thing that I found attractive, uh, when I first encountered her and, um, the twin brother is Ruggiero and he becomes sort of like the hero of the Orlando stories. Um, so Spencer's Fairy Queen is really an encomium um, to Elizabeth I in many ways and, right. and a criticism of her realm. But um, oftentimes these epic romances, the epic part is that it has something to do with the creation of statehood or the um, institution of a particular lineage. And so in the Orlando books, that's es- that's the Este family in Modena, um, who mm-hmm. Ariosto worked for. And his work is a continuation of a late 15th century work, Orlando um, Inamorato, that was started by Matteo Boiardo. And both Boiardo and Ariosto were um, worked for, essentially, the Este family. And so it's like basically the story of where um, Isabella d'Este and came from and... Um, Really, the the idea is that, you know, there's a, that you're, uh, I forget which scholar says this, but essentially the compliment is that your great, great, great grandma wore combat boots. <laughs> <laughs> and Anne was nursed by a tiger. Uh, well, Marfisa was not the, uh, there's another lady knight um, okay. who marries Ruggiero and she was, she was brought up properly. Um, she's still a knight. Okay. She trained with her brothers and everything, but she was not, mm-hmm. not suckled by a tiger, unfortunately. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> So how, how how common do you think it was for like sisters to be trained with their brothers in martial arts? Um, 
You know, it's hard finding the records. So, and and you you know you've got the weight of the weight of patriarchy. It's then mm-hmm. assumptions that um, that's just not things that girls and women did. And so, you know, the way that you the assumption that you start from is that it it didn't happen. Um, okay. So it's hard to make the argument that it was common because we don't have a lot of records. We also don't have a lot of records of boys being trained. We just um, right. assume that they were. Um, we certainly know that they were. Um, we do have records, though, of some. So Katarina Sforza mm-hmm. was um, definitely trained um, to some extent by her brothers. I mean, she she came from the Sforza family in Milan. The, the Sforza family, um, they were basically, um, oh, like swords for hire. And the mm-hmm. uh, they took over they like ousted the the family the like noble family that was there and 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 became the rulers of milan and um all of them were pretty militaristic and so you know katarina she was married off at very young age and in an unexpected way like the one of the conditions she was only 10 or 11 was that the marriage would be consummated normally they would be you know married that young Uh. but they would live with their families or they would go live with the other family but the actual consummation would be be they're like much later so really gross and her father agreed that is gross yeah it's nasty and she loved her father she adored her father and so it's this you know kind of interesting the family. Really yeah. yeah. Um, but she then lived with her family until she was about 15 or 16 and then moved. And she married um, several different, including a Medici. But mm-hmm. she, uh, there's a book called The Tigress of Forli. That's a, it's a really great blend of like academic research, but for like public audience kind of mm-hmm. um, text. And if you are interested in Katarina Sforza, which everyone should be, in my opinion, uh, it's a great way of learning about her. But she led forces. I mean, she <laughs> went, went to like battle several times, like pregnant. She had a bunch of kids and um, she like led her city was um, under siege and she was the one who provisioned it, figured out how to keep it together. Um, she mm-hmm. had, there's armor that belonged to her um, in Bologna. She had a very fine breastplate so that she could wear like underneath of her dress or on top that, you know, you could sort of disguise it because she was a target of assassins. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yes. There's like rumor, like there's a, a theory that um, like Aphrodite in, um, like Aphrodite coming out of the shell, that you know, famous mm-hmm. painting, that she was the inspiration of that. So right. <laughs> she she was quite quite written and spoken about in 15th mm-hmm. century Italy. Um, I'm not sure how I ended up at Caterina Sforza. Basically, Italian women are my jam. <laughs> <laughs> okay, no, that, that's fine. And like I said, it's my job to keep us on track, and I think we are thoroughly, thoroughly on track because this is this is just exactly where you know this podcast tends to go. <laughs> Um, but actually, remind, yeah, one example of a woman fighting that I find like particularly instructive is um, the inspiration for the lady deck for my card game, uh, Lady mm. Agnes Hottop, right? Mm-hmm. And the story is um, her father was disputing a piece of land with their neighbor and the gentleman agreed that they would joust on the land and the winner would keep the land, right? Which seems like a very reasonable way to do it, right? Yeah, of course. Mm-hmm. On, the, on the day of the joust, um, her father was ill with the gout. And so she armoured up, got on the horse, went to the piece of land, jousted the guy, knocked him off his horse, 
therefore won the land and then took off her helmet to reveal the fact that mm-hmm. he had just been knocked off his horse by a girl, right? And she was about 18 at the time. And the thing is, anyone who has ever put on armor or tried to get a spear to go where you wanted to go while you're sitting on a <laughs> horse that's moving, right? anyone who's ever done that knows that the only way that could possibly be true is if she had a huge amount of training. Yep. So, you know, of course she must have trained. How common it was for girls to get that sort of training, I don't know. But yeah, we don't know. I mean, there are some, I, 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 I remember how I ended up in Italy. Uh, uh, there are more records of like girls in Italian families, which in, in many ways were, you know, Italy was this kind of weird combination of much stricter in some ways and much more mm-hmm. free in others. Um, but there are, you know, records of like Venetian courtesans who were trained in um, dueling and they would, they would, they would fight and duel like for, as a performance, um, you know, so like whether wow. it was, you know, it, it was deadly play, but it was still, it was still training. So it's like prize fighting. Uh, yeah, kind of. Um, there is the, oh my gosh, I'm forgetting her name. She's this incredibly famous, like there's a movie like Dangerous Beauty that is about her and that, that, that the movie has many liberties with history, but she is one of the courtesans who was like known to, like she lost her temper and like challenged this gentleman to a duel and in the movie uh, they have this duel. Sounds like La Maupin. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Um, okay, so we were referring to like deadly combat a moment ago, and you looking at your bio, you do have a fairly strong interest in wounds and slaughter. <laughs> I <Okay>? do, <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and swords do do horrible damage. So, you know, I've I've went to a uh, lecture by a pathologist on basically ways in which weapons, the weapons that we were training with that weekend, um, what they would actually do to an actual body because you know he's. Mm-hmm done the autopsies on people who have been murdered with these things um so what how do you sort of find out what swords did historically and what can you tell us about it so i um in my (laughs) the ways that uh a phd and like i was technically in an english department but um Mm -hmm. obviously worked pretty interdisciplinarily and was really fortunate to be in a department that supported that kind of work and um, at a university, University of Minnesota, that has several um, research centers at the time, Center for Early Modern History and Center for Medieval Studies that were primarily history focused, but very supportive of interdisciplinary work. And so I continue to have, um, you know, a, a university affiliation with University of Minnesota through the Center for Early Modern History that's now combined and there's a um, Center for Pre-Modern Studies. And so that means... Um, that means I still have my library privileges, which it's, as I'm sure you are well aware, it's very hard to be an independent scholar without that kind yes. of university connection to um, resources. So I, I, you know, I kind of share that to say that I, I do a lot of work with um, medical treatises and um, the first chapter of my dissertation and that became part of it became one of my, my articles. Um, I work with Vesalius's um, De Humani Corporis Fabrica in 1543, which is he sort of thought of as the father of modern anatomy, um, because there's a preoccupation with the body and um, what what's inside of it, how it's made, what, what the pieces look like, how they are, and that feeds really naturally into, you know, surgical treatises. This obviously was well preceding 1543, but um, 
De Humani Corporis Fabrica is this big, beautiful book with gorgeous woodcuts all throughout um, and visualizes the human body and its anatomy in ways that um, just didn't exist before that text. And so you have this happening at the same time as there is a a lot of war (laughs) in in Europe at the time and um, needing to treat wounds and and particularly with the increased use of of, of gunpowder weapons and artillery causing damage to bodies um, that was new before. So you have like the wound man, which is a, um, goes back into the medieval tradition. It's present in a lot of anatomy texts, but especially in, um, became uh, something that is in surgical texts. And so it shows the human body and then just like all different kinds of things that can happen to it from like, you know, insect bites to getting hit by a bullet to getting cut by a dagger to getting a thrust into the stomach. And so this very sad person is like sort of standing out and has, you know, different different weapons. And this would sort of be used as a, a visual reference to like, if you need to treat a gun wound, see this, go over here. And then there's, you know, kind of descriptions of different kinds of, of treatments. But the, so, so this, this medical, um, the medical developments at the time were, you know, overlapping with the, the very grim reality of bodies ripped in, uh, apart on battlefields. And, um, you know, there weren't, there needed to be ways to treat these conditions and there weren't necessarily ways known. So a lot of it was experimentation. Um, and then you would have people like Ambrose Pere, who was a um, battlefield surgeon who rose to be the surgeon to the French king in um, the 16th century. And he would uh, just try out, um, you know, what was at hand because you're on a battlefield. So like you don't right. necess- you're going to run out of wine or you're going to run out, of, you know, the, the sort of accepted ways of treating wounds. And so, you know, there's this huge debate um, in the late medieval and early modern world in medicine about whether, well, going back to classical periods, whether wounds should superate or whether you want pus, you want laudable yeah. pus <laughs> or <laughs> like there's good or bad pus. Um, yeah. And uh, that's gross. So, you know, Pere ran out of um, like a basically really astringent thing that you would, they would, I forget mm-hmm. what it was, put in the wounds to cause this laudable pus and instead use like wine and wrapped the wound. And it surprisingly <laughs> like healed better that way. And he was like, huh, these guys are way more comfortable. They're not crying anywhere near as much as these other guys that I used the other treatment for. So I'm just going to kind of keep doing this. And so, you know, like wine obviously has um, antibiotic or cleansing properties. Um, there would often be use of honey, uh, which still is being used um, to help cure wounds. And so through this kind of experimentation, uh, you would have the proliferation of of ideas of how to treat the body. And um, one of my favorite stories in Prey says he gets one of his most famous cures. It's like a salve for treating gunpowder wounds from an old lady, uh, old woman in a village who that's what she did. Um, for the people who were just like left there as, you know, uh, forces would move on, the wounded who couldn't leave would often just stay in the nearest community um, if they could either pay for service or the people decided to take care of them. So Perret would collect um, different kinds of like recipes for for um, salves and whatever and try them out. Um, 
and sometimes they would work. And so you you have a proliferation, not just at, at um, like in the university setting about like what anatomy is and, and you know, Vesalius is the most representative of that tradition, um, but you also have this sort of experimental practice and Prey is probably one of the most representative of that tradition. And um, back to my interest in gender, you have women who are um, included in this sort of medical marketplace and the forthcoming book, Domesticating War, that um, my co-author, Emily Beck, she's an assistant curator at the Wangenstein Biomedical Library at the University of Minnesota, um, that we're interested in. Her background is history of medicine, and she works specifically with these recipe traditions and um, recipe books that some would come from like monasteries or be collections that like um, some of them are women from families would like collect and hand down um, or, you know, men too. It's kind of a really commonplace books. It's like that tradition, yeah. except for it's focused on, on these recipes, but they're for everything from, um, you know, medical recipes to like food, to how to dye your horse green, how to make your armor <laughs> shiny. Like right. <laughs> there's a full yeah, tradition. Fireworks too, yeah. <laughs> um, so that, you know, kind of academic interest in, um, you know, these anatomical texts is what sort of led me down the, the, the rabbit hole into surgical texts. And, um, you know, you get descriptions of wounds in these, these romances. You know, sure. I started with literature, right? Like, so especially like Mallory and the, the English romances and it's in, you know, the, the French Arthurian ones too, you know, like they fought all on the battlefield, like all night until they were like swimming in blood, like up to their knee, their horse's knees, like the, the idea of, you know, that much blood, <laughs> like that's for, for dramatic effect. Right. But there would be lots and lots of blood. So, um, that, that kind of led me to look at the what what kind of medical um, knowledge did they have and did they use? Um, and I now work for um, Medtronic, which is a medical device company. So um, okay. that, that interest in the medical tradition continues. <laughs> so what are you doing for Medtronic? Um, I'm a program manager. So I am like technically responsible for the like the scope the budget and um, the schedule for for various projects I've been working on um, primarily just our, our research studies so um, there are clinical trials for um, you know new new kinds of devices um, Medtronic started in in Minnesota um, and one of the things that I, I love to say is like the the founder Earl Bakken um, he was an electrical engineer and he teamed up with um, uh, Dr. Lillehei at University of Minnesota. And um, there was a power outage in the little 50s. I mean, if I get this history wrong, everyone been trying to watch this is going to be like, oh my God, Amanda. Um, but there was a power outage and a little boy, there was a, like, he was hooked up to a, like an external pacemaker that was plugged into the wall mm -hmm. and um, he died because the, the power went out. And so the doctor was like, we got to have a, we got to have a different way. And so teamed up with um, Earl Bakken and they made an, you know, an external pacemaker that was battery powered. And so from there, um, the, you know, the, the core of Medtronic, it was pacemakers and um, then defibrillators. And, and now it's much, we make ventilators, like all kinds of things. But I, I work in that cardiac space. So um, around uh, pacemakers and defibrillators and cardiac resynchronization um, therapy devices, and uh, I and um, up until I'm kind of taking over a new role here pretty soon, but have worked in clinical things to try to come up with like you know new algorithms that make them work better. Um, 
So right. I, I have a weird sort of intersection of my <laughs> research yeah, yeah, interests. That's not where I, th- I did not think we would be talking about pacemakers today, but no. this is great. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the copy of Vesalius, um, at, like, so I mentioned mm-hmm. the Wangenstein Biomed collection. We're really lucky here to have um, an excellent collection of medical and surgical texts and instruments um, that goes, I think, I don't remember what their earliest piece is. They have manuscripts from, I think, the 14th century, but wow. it's primarily strongest in um, early modern and through the 18th century and beyond, but that that's mm-hmm. kind of the area I work in, um, surgical text. So there, we have one of the original copies of Vesalius. Wow. And so I worked with that copy and that's what's, you know, the images come from it and my articles from mm-hmm. that, that copy of Vesalius was given to the biomed library by Earl Bakken was, was his wow. original copy. So I'm like, well, I was meant to work oh <laughs> <laughs> That's extraordinary. Yeah, I, it didn't occur to me that you had access to an original sort of slap bang in the middle of America. Yep. But yep. Yeah, it's, wow. it's a yeah. It's a pretty Minnesota's a, a weird space <laughs> in like, the United States. You wouldn't think that we, you know, have the Oakshot collection. I mean, our, our collection right. is one of the largest private collections. <laughs> and, yeah. and then you have you know the Wangenstein and the James Ford Bell, which has these amazing maps and travel narratives. Um, that are from all kind of all over the world, just randomly here in Minnesota. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. One of the difficulties I had preparing for this interview is I was looking through your bio and looking at all your published papers and what have you. And I was like, okay, we can do an episode on this one. We can do an episode <laughs> on that. There's just, there's just too many interesting things that we could, that we could go into. So, um, okay. I, I have a broad interest in, in martial arts generally and sword arts in particular. It's, it's like I know a lot of I have a lot of colleagues and friends who they like, I don't know, early 17th century Italian rapier and that's what they do. Or they like Fiore's art of arms and that's what they do. Or they like, I don't know, 18th century small sword in the French style. That's what they do, right? Whereas I like all of it and I do all of it, right? So, <laughs> and, and to me, they aren't, they don't really contradict each other or, I mean, they're different, but they're like, they're like languages. You can, mm-hmm. you're saying pretty much the same things. You just say them with different words in a different way. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so you have this very broad interest in like, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, so, so I'm just curious, do you, do you compartmentalize them or do you see them as, as, basically different aspects of the same thing. And if it's that, what is that same thing they are different aspects of? For me, they, they are, they, they uh, interleave as, um, okay. it's a, a word from, forget the French, like this famous French scholar, but that's how he described um, uh, romances. And so like Arthurian romances. And I start from, this like at the core, the thing that uh, like I, I actually have expertise in, as opposed to like you know dabbling and moving and sort of accreting to my interests, um, is is literature. I started in these these romances, um, so you know King Arthur stories like the, and these are like traditions that span centuries and different writers who would just pick up and continue parts of the story. So like the way that the Marvel universe works, I, I, I love the way that the Marvel universe works because it's like the way that Arthurian romance and, and romance, you know, kind of as it came mm. out now you get Marfisa or you get um, Brynamart, who's the lady knight in um, Spencer's the fairy queen. It's that same kind of interwoven universe 
and lots of it are kind of messy, but all of it fits together in sometimes orderly ways and and sometimes ways that only make sense if you take you, you know you take your fingers and you cross them and then you change the orientation like you see a different image depending on your perspective and so for me these things were not like if you just look at at at, at recipes and you think recipes just you know they were used in the home and you use them to make food or whatever and you everything that's in this book they must have done like and you don't think about the ways that the um, you know the the battlefield surgeon Perret or or whoever it is is like f- dealing with the actual realities of war and so they're going to try whatever they can from wherever it comes from because they they have to right um, mm-hmm. and then you know you have at the same time this university conversation that's happening about anatomy and the body and um, how it works and at the same time you have this being in literature and and like on um, popular stage like there, Shakespeare is full of of medical I mean well Shakespeare's full of tons of stuff but like medical references and 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 sword play obviously and and in the world of the 16th century which is my primary focus but like in the late medieval and early modern period more generally, these things are not discrete and separate from one another. They overlap. And so my argument for, you know, not only is periodization problematic because uh, history just doesn't work that way, but, um, you know, this this isolation into very, very hyper-specific fields creates blinders where you don't see um, how these things fit together. And, you know, I'm, I'm certainly not making the argument that I know how they fit together. <laughs> I'm really yeah. just saying, you know, and the, the interest that I have, I feel like this is trying to like, t- you know, unravel a, like a, a really kind of a Gordian knot to, instead of just cutting it apart, which I think is what really hyper-specific scholarship, and there's a place for that. Um mm-hmm. But if you want to kind of like take the knot as itself, it's messy and you kind of have to sort of become a jack of all trades. And <laughs> yeah. I, I have an analogy for this. It's like a rainbow has like the whole spectrum of visible light. And you can very clearly see that blue is not green, is not red, right? They are very clearly different. But if you actually look into the rainbow and sort of zoom in there is no way to see a dividing line between the colors because it is a spectrum mm-hmm. yeah and that's that. that's that's fine if you're looking if you're looking at the whole thing but if you're trying to make paint you have to choose right the red paint and the blue paint they're different <laughs> yeah yeah so yep. so i think there's 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 absolutely a place for that sort of specialization and it's like like the martial arts right violence is a spectrum phenomenon and like sword blows you can usefully classify them in various different ways like you know descending blows and forehand blows and rising blows and what have you but at what point does my madrid offendente become a crosswise blow a mezzano blow right in at what exact angle off off the vertical yeah, and, and what about a vertical blow? You know, where in that spectrum does it have to fall for it to be classified like this? Mm-hmm. Right. So we have these classifications that we we um, we start with because beginners have to be able to distinguish between a mandrillo fendente forehand descending blow and a reversal fendente because backhand and forehand are different. But it's these dis- these distinctions are artificial, and if you stick with them too long, too obsessively. You, you are unable to actually use any of, 
any of them because you can't improvise and modify and, and sort of step back a bit and see the fight as a whole. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that, that's, that's how, I, how I would kind of conceptualize it. Yeah, and I, I um, so one of the chapters in, in my dissertation and, uh, uh, well, I'm really interested in rhetoric, uh, but it was with like a lot of fencing treatises. So if you think of like Agrippa or, you know, mm-hmm. the, the, the Agrippa is one of the ones that I was most interested in because of the sort of geometric representation of mm-hmm. the body in, 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 in combat and various, you know, these, I think he was a geometer Geomet- he did geometry before, but um, yeah, he's an architect. An architect, yes, yeah. yeah. And so you know, the, the the images are really interesting, but the text is too, because especially if you are thinking, uh, you, like when you read in the descriptions, there'll be stuff about like, well, you know, if you're in a fight with a friend, you do this. If you're in a fight with an enemy, you do this. And um, that's in tons of these these fencing treatises. If you're looking for them for technique, like. Yes, that's in there. Um, and, you know, I dabble in, in, in HEMA. I have a bad <laughs> wrist. And so Meyer and Longsword, it, nope, that doesn't, that yeah. hurts real bad. So okay. <laughs> the, the club here, um, they're doing more, you know, they do, uh, they're starting with more like rapier and side sword. And so I was like, well, I'll switch to left-handed. I'm, I'm very much the awkward academic. Like I'm very clumsy. I'm not very good, <laughs> but I, I like trying. So... <laughs> And go back and do that left-handed. But, um, you know, so the technique is there. But as a not technician of HEMA, more just a, 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 like a, a dabbler and a fan, um, but mm-hmm. certainly not a, a an expert in it. You know, when I read the text, I'm interested in what else is in there. And there's tons right. in those texts around relationships, um, you know, be, and, and genders, especially really like homosocial relationships between these men and um, who it would be at these clubs essentially you know training together forming relationships and um how that would ripple out sort of into their larger um social settings and the treatises you know are really great examples of something that it's easy to um think that it's about one thing you know it's about this very precise angle makes this thrust or this cut or you know this is how far you should lunge but there's all this other stuff that's in there and so if you're just looking for technique that maybe is all you're going to see but if you kind of look at it more broadly, there's, there's just so much more that's in there. Um, and especially when you start comparing them to each other, that you have this kind of discourse that's happening um, sure. between these writers. I, and sometimes they, they quote each other and do not give, <laughs> <laughs> do not give attribution. And sometimes they, yes. like, if I remember rightly, um, I think it's Alfieri refers to Capoferro as Capo di Ferro. <laughs> which, is, which is okay let me just explain that for non-italian speakers okay capo ferro is a name that means iron head right but capo di ferro would mean head of iron in other words dumb, dumb. <laughs> right so, so yeah there's there's definitely a little bit of that going on um i think my okay. favorite though is like mm-hmm. nate silver and his uh very <laughs> He doesn't like the Italians, and he's really grumpy uh, that they're Silver. taking. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> George Silver, yeah. Sorry. So, yeah. No, worries. Uh, I, I'm I'm eyes deep in silver at the moment because I'm at the end stages of producing an audiobook version of Paradoxes of Defense. Oh, I love right. that! I'm so excited right. for that! Yay! Yes, and I've got two versions. One is um, in modern pronunciation, 
And the other, I got Ben Crystal, the Shakespearean actor, to do an original pronunciation read of George Sewer. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. I'm so excited. It is, it is really cool. Yeah. I'll, I'll send it to you. You can, you can have Yeah, I love it. I, whenever I read Silver, he has a particular voice in my head, so I'm super excited to have him <laughs> Yeah, and there's, there's definitely an awful lot of snark. <laughs> Actually, the, um, the audio engineer who, who was working on the modern pronunciation version is actually Italian, and she thinks that um, he was probably turned down by a girl in favor of some Italian fencer or something like that. And that's probably where it all comes from. <laughs> there's something personal. <laughs> there, there's definitely something personal going on. Um, okay. So now we've mentioned your forthcoming book, uh, Domesticating War. Um, so what can you tell us about women, medicine and military activity? So this is a new project. <laughs> so we're at the very early stages. I think our manuscript okay. is due like January 2023. So oh, wow. <laughs> it's okay. not forthcoming yeah. anytime soon. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We just signed a contract. Um, and like, as I mentioned, it's a collaboration between um, Dr. Beck and myself. And so I'm currently working on a chapter um, that's really about coming home after what what it's what what the sort of experiences after war um okay. and the ways that these men it would return home and how that would sort of affect their communities or um what was often very common is that they didn't come back home and so home became you know very itinerant places so um really what i've just been doing is reading through um like Coningsby's Description of the Siege of Rouen, um, Raleigh, Smith, um, Donald McBain. That's more of like oh, I love later. McBain. But yeah, <laughs> uh, Craig Craig recommended that one to me. And I was like, this is fantastic. It's a great book. <laughs> it's amazing. And I, I'm, I'm planning an audiobook version of his autobiography as well. Love getting it. A, can you imagine getting a, a Highland Scot to read that? <laughs> Wouldn't that be brilliant? It, yes, and and there's a lot of medical stuff in there. Yeah, like, there is. Mm -hmm. Like when he gets blown up and, and these monks <laughs> stick a puppy's intestines on his face to yep. make him all better. It's yep. like, no, I don't want puppy's intestines on my face. But <laughs> his eyesight was saved. Yeah, so I mean, it, it worked, so. It, well, well, at, least it didn't, at least it didn't do any harm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I, that one I really love because, you know, his wife, he calls yeah. her. You know, she's um, and he runs like brothels and stuff. And so yeah. like women are all over these texts totally. in ways that yeah. um, are easy to miss. I think they're a little bit clearer in McBain because he talks about like, well, you know, I, I got I had to keep like keeping my women safe. And so I went and yeah. I got in a fight and that was bad because I got beat up. For that. <laughs> and then like, you know, my wife like came and found me and she yelled at me because I got hurt again. But then she went and got some wine and, you know, I, I feel better. And she's the one who takes him to the monks in the first place. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and then he like leaves her his wife mysteriously disappears and he has another wife later um <laughs> so like in uh, in these communities and there's lots of records and i i, I need to get more um into some, some legal records because i've really only came across them you know incidentally in previous research about you know complaints where 
you know, soldiers would come back and they didn't want to go back to their life as a, as a farmer. And so then they, they became violent. And, you know, then there's like legal records of, um, you know, he was beating up his wife and his kids. And so the neighbors tried to stop it and then it, they couldn't became more, you know, excessive. So now we have to go to magistrate, um, you know, and so classic PTSD. Yep. Get the my same husband, thing after every war. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, my husband is a ex-combat officer. <laughs> so, right. um, you know, thinking about the ways that, you know, they don't have that. They don't know what PTSD is, but certainly the the effects of the reintegration of, of men into their communities and the effect that, uh, you know, the role that women played as as caregivers. Um, you know, we have other chapters specifically on like military camps and women's roles there. Um, but the what I'm thinking about right now is... Um, how communities try to reintegrate or are, you know, kind of broken apart or ways that after war, men just don't reintegrate into their communities. And so become, you know, they stay where they were taken or, you know, they travel or, um, or you know, more often die. I mean, like the the problem for what, what to do with veterans was um, quite the concern in late medieval and early modern Europe, it wasn't really until, you know, different places would take care of their, of their veterans and, and sometimes families of, of, of men who died um, a little bit, but mostly they were on their own. And so yeah. communities kind of had to um, absorb that trauma. Um, so the, the book is, you know, it's, it's called, it's about women, but, but, you know, really, I don't think you can, you can't really talk about these communities without thinking about, you know, it's about everybody. <laughs> yeah. And again, it's one of those, um, you can focus on the women, but if you, if you then can't see the rest of the picture, you've got that spectrum phenomenon problem again. Right. Um, which is not really like how I, how I want to do my, how I do my scholarship. So, you know, our sure. focus is, is really around, around women. Um, but situating women, you know, in places where it's, it's easy to think that they weren't there. Um, so, you know, there's some great, great scholarship on, um, you know, hu- the huge military camps, like, I mean, like 60, right. 70,000 people. Um, obviously there were women there <laughs> and uh, <laughs> thousands, of them. <laughs> thousands of them. And they're, you know, the, and then tons of complaints from um, officers and from provisioners who are like, oh, okay, there's can only be like, three women for every 10 men or <laughs> like trying to control the ratios, um, which yeah. obviously those records prove they failed. <laughs> right. They're trying, yes. they're failing. <laughs> yeah. If, if, if people are complaining about it, it must be happening. Right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. And it reminds me like, you know, the, the famous um, 300 Spartans at Thermopylae. There was, there was 5,000 of them. There was just 300 officers. Right. Um, but, you know, Still, a very small force against a very large force and heroic, yada, yada. But it wasn't 300. Those are just the famous ones. Yep. It's like when you watch a movie, you know, you've got like <laughs> the actors, they're the famous ones. But when you actually watch the credits, there's this endless roll of like dolly grips and gaffer pullers. Yep. And well, I don't know. I, I don't speak. Takes an army. but I'm It does. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Okay. Um, now... It would be a shame not to go into your PhD a little bit because Fabricating the Martial Body, Anatomy, Affect and Armour in Early Modern England and Italy. 
That okay, will also be a book. Where do we even book. start? <laughs> well, yes, and it should be. And it should be a book very soon. I don't want to have to wait until 2024 to read it. So, Well, you know, I've been working on the manuscript for that um, and then kind of got distracted because Emily and I have been sort of collaborating on stuff mm-hmm. since we were we were in grad school at the same time together. And her, um, her advisor um, was one of mine for like this fellowship that I did, he was like a a mentor. So he put us in contact. So we've been, you know, doing conferences and stuff together. And um, we're supposed to present at Renaissance Society of America in Philadelphia uh, two years ago. And of course that was COVID time. So it was canceled. And um, an editor reached out to us at Rutledge and was like, you know, interested in your topic as this part of a larger project. And we were like, well, we've been talking about doing a larger project. So we put together a book proposal and that's where this project came from. Um, so I kind of set my dissertation into book manuscript project aside, but um, the dissertation um, really kind of looks at what, um, you know, I call the martial body, what, how, how that's made. Um, and, you know, fabricating is really kind of a play on starting with anatomy. Can, can you just like, what do you mean by the martial body? Yeah, so <laughs> that took me several years to figure out what I meant well, by the martial that, body. <laughs> that's, that's, and that's why I'm asking you, because, I mean, the, the, the average listener will probably not have heard the phrase before, so. Right. Um, so the most, the most iconic representation of the martial body is the armored knight, um, I say. And so, you know, thinking about the, uh, the martial body, what, what I say, it's, it's a physical construct um, and a rhetorical trope. Uh, and so the dissertation argues that the martial body is simultaneously this physical presence of like the armored knight as its most common representation, but it's also the um, you know the the fighter in 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 the the treatises you know like the fencing treatises they're meant to be or arguably here's how you go and win but when you're reading you have a you have a a, a rhetorical trope of this fighting figure. There is there is a master and there is a student who are you know performing on the pages of this text, just like there is a master and their student actually um, you know physically present in in a studio training um, or in the romances, the epic romances that that I'm looking in. Obviously, I'm looking at I'm starting from stories and from literature, right? And so thinking about you know we have these we have lady knights. We have like lower class men who are performing, acting, speaking in ways that would not have been socially acceptable for them. Um, and you have, you know, like Arthur and, um, you know, these top tip top knights, um, all yeah. of these people in the literature are interacting in ways that, um, you know, would have been much more controlled in the, the you know, the very hierarchical um, social structure of the 16th century. So for me, um, the concept of the martial body was a way of thinking about, okay, how, how simultaneously do you take, do you have, um, the armored knight and, you know, especially in the 16th century thinking about, you know, like Clifford, um, you know, who beautiful armor, like obviously they know how to fight and they do, but you're not going to take even on a battlefield, right? Like you're not going to take your, your, your Royal (laughs) or noble, um, beautifully armored person and put them on the front lines right that's that's why we have infantry really um they would be there certainly but they um you know well richard Richard the third got killed 
on, yeah. On oh, yeah. <laughs> and you had, you know, well, like the Henrys, right? When in yeah. Shakespeare, you have all the Henrys on the battlefield, so you can keep them confused. So it certainly is a risk. Um, but the in the 16th century and moving into the 17th, when you have this massive increase in the size of, of armies, mm-hmm. um, you also have sort of like the the early version, the, the early construction of, um, you know, what became sort of modern, quote unquote, obviously is very different now, but um, army structure where you would have, you know, lines of infantry and you would have like light cavalry and heavy cavalry and the the differentiation between the forces. And so, you know, increasingly the the armored knight um, became less less relevant and, and more of an important symbol, but not the main force. Like your heavy cavalry isn't the main force of your of your battle. Right. And, and very often knights would dismount to fight anyway. Right. Yeah. Um, so the armor, um, which was what really drew me into the topic, um, then became as much of a rhetorical um, and identity construction as it was a you know useful artifact. So certainly it is protective. Obviously, that's its function. But it also announces identity um, sure. and, and in ways that, um, you know, are really fraught because, you know, you could, it, you can steal other people's armor. And this happens a lot in the romances. Um, yeah. There's like one of my, my favorite scenes where um, Marfisa's armor gets stolen by Clorinda because she wants to leave. And she's like, well, Marfisa can go wherever she wants. So if I put Marfisa's armor on, people will just think I'm Marfisa and then I can just leave. Right. And it's really heavy. And she's like, oh, I can't, I don't know how to move. And <laughs> uh, <laughs> also, it probably, probably wouldn't fit her quite perfectly. I mean, you see no. that sort of thing in, in, like, in like modern movies as well. Yeah. yeah. How, how, how do you get, I don't know, people, like you know, secret agents or whatever into the Kremlin where you dress them up as. Russian generals, and then exactly. they walk into the Kremlin, and all the soldiers salute them, and there you go. Um, and also, but the like armor of that sort of period would be decorated and painted, or even though there'll be your your sort of clan or your, mm-hmm. your name crest, your mm-hmm. coat of arms crest, as a panache on the top of your helmet, so everyone could see exactly who you were. Um, yeah. and it's a, like it's a massive statement because you have this like sometimes they're like two feet long. Yeah, yeah. Sticking out the top of your head. And just imagine how tempting it is to knock it off. Right. It's like, oh my God. And then put it on a tree. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or just keep a collection of them hanging off your belt. Right. Yep. You can imagine. Okay. Um, so obviously the armor is like quite important to you. Do you, do you wear armor at all? Do you? Do you um, do any I don't. Combat? I don't personally own armor, but um, I. Be very sad for you. I no. I'm sad for me too. Um, I'm keep trying to get Craig to make me some armor and Nathan <laughs> someday. Um, but I have worn 16th century um, pieces. So mm-hmm. uh, as part of the dissertation, I did research with the Higgins collection, and so um, with Jeffrey Forgang at mm-hmm. um, the Wooster Art Museum. And so that was my like really first encounter with um, actual pieces. And so you know the weight thing, I was surprised. And he's like, "Here, put on this breastplate." So um, I, you know, be- and I've done work at the Royal Armories with Karen um, uh, Watts. Is her last name? Oh goodness. One of those brain fart we'll, moments. We'll look it up and put it in the show Yeah, notes. we'll look it up and put it in there. Yeah, Karen's great. Um, and I, you know, worked um, uh, in 
in Italy too. And so, you know, I, I don't own armor, but I have um, the, had the privilege to handle many pieces of, of, mm -hmm. of period armor and um, put a few on. Do you have a, like a favorite, if, if, if you could commission armor in whatever style you wanted, what would you go for? Oh, I love, I love the Italian armor. My favorite um, harness is, is at the Royal Armory is it's the lion armor. And okay. um, I have, I have a little replica of it. And um, Dale, <laughs> Uh, who is um, one of the other research fellows at the Oakshot Institute and does all of our like 3D imaging, um, which mm -hmm. is amazing. Um, oh, that's a really cool project, by the way. But yeah. let's, just, let's just take a minute to plug the hell out of that project. So yeah, it's great. Just, 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 just describe it briefly for the listeners. So Dale was going to be like a aerospace engineer. Like he was in his, a PhD program. He's very, very smart and mathy. And he decided that he didn't want to do that. So he um, then was like he's he teaches and he is an expert in in, in Hema. Um but he works with our collection and you know the the mission of the Oakshot Institute is to put the sword in hands of people. I know. Oh and, it's such a good mission. But we're limited, right? Like we're mm -hmm. here in Minnesota and if your hands are not here in Minnesota, you can't hold our pieces. You can't see them. And so Dale was like, how, how can I make this um, accessible to other people? And so he uses photogrammetry and he has like, nobody can do what Dale can do um, with particularly with highly reflective surfaces, which are incredibly hard, not only to photograph, but then to make um, accurate renditions of 3d models of them. So Dale figured out a way to do it. And um, using his mathiness, I assume, and he creates these these 3D models, you know, which assembles thousands of photos from all different angles um, of of the pieces to make these models that are then interactive. So some some of them we have like um, pieces that have fell apart, um, and so we can then he made models of each of those and then assembles them. So you can actually um, interact with pieces in ways that are uh, not possible because you don't want to take apart an, <laughs> a historical weapon. Uh, um, and he is now putting them into Skyrim. <laughs> so if you play Skyrim, oh, wow. you can go in like like the Moon Brand, which is like the favorite piece in the collection from from Ewart um, Oakshot, is is in Skyrim, and you can use it as like. <laughs> And he's now trying to put like Fabrice into Skyrim mods too. So, so basically, people can go online and they can find these. Yep. Um, if you go to the Oakshot Institute, just Google the Oakshot Institute. Um, there are links to our the, the models are all on Sketchfab. You can interact with them, and they um, we have a whole we've got tons up there. Uh, not the whole collection, but. Um, I think that I think he put the our oldest piece is a Bronze Age piece, and I think he I think mm. that's up there. But most of them we have sabers. Um, he has our like Spanish rapiers on there. Um, the Kilich is on there. So uh, yeah, if, it's it's an incredible incredible piece of work. So go put our swords in your hands digitally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's about as close as you can get without actually being physically present. Yeah, so he's making me a 3D model of the lion armor. Um, like, it's not as good because he had to take many, many pictures like around yeah. the piece in the royal armories. <laughs> but he made me—he made a little 3D model of it. <laughs> That's fantastic. Okay, so so if you had tons of money, you would um, and you could just commission whatever you would get yourself a replica of the lion armor tailored to fit you, so you could clank around being a knight. I would, yes.
That's yeah. Negroli is my favorite armorer. Um, so I might, you know, put a little bit more Negroli into it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Yeah. My favorite is the Avant armor, the Kelvin Grove. Oh yeah. That's, that's beautiful. Which is just, yeah. I'm not really an armor person. I'm much more of a sword person. (laughs) But when I saw that armor in the Kelvin Grove for the first time, I was like, shit, that's my armor. How come they've got (laughs) my armor? I want it back. That belongs to me. And I'm pretty sure it would fit me perfectly. But anyway. <laughs> okay. I have a, a couple of questions that I ask all my guests. And the first is, what is the best idea you haven't acted on? You know, I've been thinking about this. Okay. And I don't... <laughs> if I want something, I usually do it. And so I was trying to think yeah. like... I mean, I've had a lot of like, you know, in retrospect, maybe doing that whole PhD. <laughs> I don't regret doing it, but uh, certainly the the job the job options are not great. Um, so I have a lot of ideas that maybe I should have not done. <laughs> <laughs> and that that's that's a different question. I mean, it is a different it, question. It's just like the best idea that I haven't done. It's it's perfectly right to say. Well, you act on all of your best ideas, and I mean, quite quite a few of my guests, maybe twenty percent of them. I haven't done the numbers. I'm not a very mathy person, but um, we'll say, we'll ask that question by saying, well, I don't really have any because I act on my ideas. So that's a perfectly legitimate response. I'm sure that, I'm sure that there are, you know, unrealized opportunities that, that I. I mean, to, to my mind, to my mind, I think the best idea you haven't acted on yet is getting that book out of your <laughs> Yes, that uh, I actually was just looking at like, so because I, you know, have the job I do it, I work a lot of hours. It's a very Mm -hmm. high pressure job, as you can imagine. Um, And so I, I, I regret not having as much time for, for research and scholarship as, as I would like to have. Um, So that, that is my best idea. I I think I like that. Um, It's not... Not carving out enough time to get those manuscripts done. I like make, make you know, I'll take a week off and be like, okay, this week I'm just really gonna, um, you know, write and get a good good chunk done, and then not touch it again for you know a couple of months because. Right, because well, yeah, you have like work. I mean, right. <laughs> the, 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 I I produce quite a lot of books, and the reason I can do, do. that is because I I don't have any other job. <laughs> I, I mean, by the, the absolute key to my productivity is I have no gainful employment. <laughs> there, really, that's, that's really the idea helps. I should have. I should do that. <laughs> I, I'm not necessarily recommending it. Um, <laughs> okay, uh, my last question. Okay, somebody gives you a million dollars to spend improving historical martial arts, however you choose to interpret that term, worldwide. How would you spend the money? Providing access to resources. I mentioned okay. earlier about like library access, right? Like that's a huge, huge problem. I mean, there's all kinds of pro- issues in in publishing. You know, like I don't get paid to publish my articles. Like I won't get paid. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe I'll like <laughs> forty bucks or something maybe for for publishing right. the books. Um, and oftentimes people have to pay to publish. Uh, I'm. Academia is sick. It's crazy. And it's not something that generally people outside of academic um, publishing or academia like think. 
Mm. They think it works like, you know, publishing your, like if you're Stephen King or whatever, like you publish your book and you you make money, that's just not how it works. And so you, um, the consequence of that is that not only do you limit the amount, it's much harder to, to create, um, you know, knowledge and ideas and, and share your research. It's just a lot harder. So a lot of it just stays inside of, um, you know, somebody's hard drive or like it's yeah. locked behind paywalls. And so tons of people who, you know, are doing really amazing work, um, you know, in historical martial arts and are not, you know, traditional academics, like they don't have access to that. And similarly, traditional academics oftentimes are blinded to all of the great research that is being done in a more public domain. And so if I had tons of money, it would be to sort of level those paywalls um, and, you know, like open access information, like access to, to the knowledge and, and the research, because I just can't imagine how, and not just in historical martial arts would, would this be um, generative, but especially in historical martial arts, because there's so much specialized knowledge that, you know, people like Craig Johnson at the Oakshot Institute, who's a Smith, like he knows more of, like so he will have forgotten yeah. <laughs> he's forgotten yeah. more than i will ever know <laughs> about edge yeah. weapons and you know you just have these silos of information that happen largely mm-hmm. because uh, i think you know one of the main causes is 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 the restriction to um and the resources like copies of manuscripts and copies of of early books like yeah yeah i mean projects like the wicked now are going a long yeah. way to make the yeah. sources available but I there's, love that. but there's also a lot of like research that just isn't available actually i have a top tip for for listeners if you come across an article that looks like really interesting and it's behind a paywall and you don't happen to be affiliated to university and so you can't go to the university library and read the journal because and a subscription is going to be something ridiculous like three thousand dollars as yeah. after now yeah. right it's crazy right yeah it's nuts these academic publishers they charge astonishingly large amounts of money for subscriptions and they don't pay the authors at all. None of that money goes to the author. (laughs) None of it, right? But in my experience, if you go, if you find the academic who has produced it online, they'll usually have an email address. And if you email them and say, I came across your article and it looks really interesting. Um, I am not affiliated with the university, so I can't, uh, please can I have a copy of it? They are normally so happy that somebody's noticed their research. So they, thrilled. <laughs> like, yes, of course. Here you are. Here's a PDF. And here's a couple of other ones you might be interested in too. Yes, please go read. Yes, so, absolutely. Like, so go, go straight to the academic. Yep, is, is, yep. Is, yeah, you can do like an end run around these horrible paywalls. Yeah, academia.edu, lots of people will have their stuff up there and mm-hmm. some a lot of it is just there. Um, but yeah, if you sure. contact oh, contact people, they're more than yeah. happy usually to share. <laughs> so how would you actually set about getting rid of those paywalls or, or living around them? Would you, I don't know, buy out the publishers and take away the paywalls or what? Or, yeah, or I don't know. <laughs> The practical solution part, that's hard. Um, I think like it, it almost would be nice to just have like a sort of like the way that the Mellon Foundation works, like they, um, you know, give out tons of grants and fund all kinds of projects and just have something like the, the Mellon Foundation. But that's a foundation just for like making um, academic work accessible. And so, okay. you know, some journals, you if you're the author or or your institution or sometimes like you're, you know, there'll be a, a grant available through like in your field and like your 
um, you can pay to make something open access. And so it's extra. Um, and ideally, the academic publishers would, would just not charge that. But a lot of times it's not even the academic publishers. It's a problem. It's like the conglomerates that, that form. Mm-hmm. Like it's not Rutledge that's necessarily the issue. It's um, like the the services that you know, that make them all come, come together and like getting yeah. rid of them would be great and just just have publishers and so you know they don't make much money either oftentimes and so if you could like have this fund and say okay I want you to publish my like every article that you publish like here's the $300 or whatever it is that you need um, to like make an, an, an acceptable profit um so you can continue to exist publishers because we do need you. Yeah. Uh, but also now this is available to everybody. And so just kind of like, I don't know, supplement the the actual source, like the publishers themselves and the, the, the authors themselves. And this mm. wouldn't just be, you know, academics either. Right. Cause like it, a lot of people who are publishing, you know, great work have to publish this, have self publish, And that's also really expensive. So like, uh, okay. I find that self publishing is really not that, expensive and actually i make oh. quite quite a bit of money from my books well good like, that's like great maybe maybe a third of my income comes from like from my books since since i started self-publishing that's awesome i feel yeah. like there i've heard other experiences and maybe it, then maybe like part of the grant could be for that teaching people like you share your knowledge like how you <laughs> how you self-publish effectively because <laughs> there's people who do it the wrong way <laughs> yeah i mean the the, the trick is that avoid the vanity presses because they will charge you a huge amount of money to do stuff like, and instead of that spend maybe a quarter of that money that you would spend on a vanity press, hiring a decent editor, hiring a proofreader, if necessary, hiring someone to do the layout and the cover. Yeah. Um, And for not a huge amount of money, you can get a professionally produced book. And, you know, I have like books from Palgrave Macmillan. Um, Here's one that just happens to be to hand. And when I look at the back of it, there is a little thingy here saying Lightning Source UK Limited. They are, this is produced by the same, on the same presses, using exactly the same technology as where my books are produced from. Yeah. Right. So we're using the same printers. Yeah. And, and these, you know, this is Palgrave Macmillan. They're using print on demand like every sensible person does these days. Yeah, and and so we have access to all the same infrastructure, editors and graphic people and printers and distributors and all that lot, for really not a lot of money compared to what you'd pay at a vanity press. That's a great uh, tip. And also, and also compared to how much time you put into the book, right? I mean, that's that's the real investment. It takes a long time mm-hmm. to write a decent book. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. So yeah, I mean. In, in my experience, a book will cost somewhere around $2,500 to produce, something like that. Wow. There are some <laughs> people that don't like pay that. Is there? <laughs> we have to pay that to get the, the, the right, press to which publish. Is, <laughs> which, is, which is crazy. I mean, it is. Okay, well, okay, with academic publishing, if you're publishing for reputation, it can matter that you have the right publisher, right. the right journal. But if you yeah. just want to get your research into the hands of the people who are interested in it, they don't care. I mean, most people have no idea who published their favorite book. They right. know the author and they know the title, like, you know, I don't know, Richard Adams' Watership Down or whatever. But who published them? Who published that? I have no idea. Yeah. How, how would I know? 
Yeah, that's um, part of the academic why, bracket why, too, okay. right? Like, <laughs> right. Yeah. And, yeah, and it makes sense if you're a career academic and you're publishing for status, then you follow, you jump through those hoops and you get that status because you get paid by getting tenure because of mm-hmm. these publications, or you, you get paid by getting the next job up. Um, but yeah. And that's for, increasingly not going to be like where right, most right. research and, and I mean, there just aren't very many of those positions anymore. Sure. Um, yeah. So I, I would thoroughly recommend um, publishing. I've definitely like filed yourself. this tip away for future reference. Thank you for sharing yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> no worries. And, and I, I actually mean, it. I want to read it. And if you need help getting it, like get, getting through the process and figuring out, you know, how to publish it, that kind of stuff. Just ask me. I'll be happy to help. Fantastic. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> okay. So the money goes to basically making the research that people like me, I guess, are doing and people who are stuck away in their ivory tower institutions (laughs) are doing. That's not me. (laughs) Basically breaking down the silos to allow that kind of information. I think that's an excellent use of the money. And if I had it, I would certainly give it to you. But then I don't think I've had a guest with a bad idea yet. (laughs) (laughs) so so my gigantic store of imaginary money is getting smaller and smaller but fortunately it's easily replenished (laughs) brilliant well thank you very much indeed for joining me today amanda it's been lovely meeting you thank you so much guy this has been great i'm a fan of your work and so i am just very excited i told craig i was like oh my god i get to go on the same podcast as you (laughs) (laughs) thanks for listening i hope you enjoyed my conversation with amanda You can find the episode show notes at guywindsor.net forward slash podcast. While you're there, you can sign up to my mailing list and I'll send you a free copy of my book, Sword Fighting for Writers, Game Designers and Martial Artists. Regular listeners to this show will know that my latest book has just come out. It is called The Windsor Method, The Principles of Solo Training. And you can find out all about it at guywindsor.net forward slash solo. I'd like to thank my patrons on Patreon for their kind support of the show. It lets me know that you care about the show and want it to continue. You can join us there for behind-the-scenes content and to submit your questions for future guests. That's patreon.com forward slash the sword guy. Join us next week when I'll be talking to Sebastian de Castell. He is the author of one of my absolute favourite book series featuring swords, which is called The Great Coats. And also one of my absolute favorite, should we say, light fantasy series called Spellslinger, which is kind of like a Wild West meets um, magic and fantasy series. It's, it's impossible to describe, but we actually talk about it in some detail in the interview. Sebastian is, of course, also um, something of a historical sword person himself. So... You don't want to miss that, I suspect, so you can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast from. And while you're there, please do rate the show. And if you have an extra minute, leave a review. And of course, the best thing you can do if you want to get the word out is think of somebody you know who would specifically enjoy this particular episode and share it directly with them. There's absolutely nothing that beats a personal recommendation. So thanks for listening and I will see you next week.